Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm the pastor here at Covenant Church and just one of uh, the seven elders that has the privilege of leading and serving this church as we go about the mission that Nick just kind of described. And so uh, I'm excited this morning. We're in a series called Abundant Love. Abundant Love. And let me tell you a real quick backstory how we got here. If you didn't hear this last week, um, about six months ago, I, I kind of plan out sermon calendar along with the elders a pretty far distance out. And this was circled as uh, February would be a vision month for us, which January, if you were here at all, was more mission-centric. We talked about what does it mean to know Jesus and make him known. And then as we hit February, I thought we'll talk about kind of where we're going. And the more uh, just listening to our elders and talking with our elders, it, it occurred to us kind of as a group that where we're going is, is right back to our mission. That our vision here at Covenant Church isn't to uh, raise a certain amount of money or build a certain number of buildings or grow. And our, our vision is to do that really well, to know Jesus and make him known a little bit better every day, a little bit more passionately every day. And so that's what we're here to do. We're here to know Jesus and make him known. And so our vision is uh, going to really, instead of being like, here's this big thing we're going to go to on the horizon, what we're going to talk about for this entire month is this abundant love of Jesus, which is the how of going about the mission. How do we go about this incredible mission we've been given? What's the character that we take on and how do we chase that? And so that's what this whole month is. Uh, Last week, we heard a little about it, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 for the entire month. We're just walking through uh, with Jesus, kind of one little vignette, one story at a time. And so today we're going to be talking about Jesus's healing love. And we're going to be in Luke 5, uh, starting in verse 12. We'll put it up on the screen, and you can read along with me. The Bible says this, while he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and besought him. He said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him, Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to the people. But so much the more the report went abroad concerning him, and great multitudes gathered to hear and be healed of their infirmities. But he, Jesus, withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. When we moved to Bowling Green, our family moved here around about four years ago, and we had family from Texas who said, we'd love to visit you in your new home. We'd love to come see your city, visit you, see your house, meet your friends, see your church. We want to be a part of this. And so people wanted to visit. And, and the first question they asked was like, where do we fly into? Can we fly into Bowling Green? And we would kind of <laughs> chuckle. Yes, if you have a private jet or a crop duster, you're welcome to. To which they would say, okay, well, well like, what's your nearest airport? And we go, well, Toledo. They go, okay, well, we can fly into Toledo. And we go, well, if you're coming in July from Myrtle Beach, Orlando, or Chicago, yes, at exorbitant prices, but otherwise not really. And they would then say, well, then where do we fly into? Like, how do we come see you? And we'd say, well, you just fly into Detroit. At which their mouths drop off. They were aghast. What? We have to fly into a different state to visit you? And you have to remember, these are people from Texas. My wife and I went to college both in Texas. We were a nine-hour drive from each other. You can go from El Paso to Houston 13 hours and never leave the state. And so when people hear you have to come from another state, they're thinking this is like a four-day journey from the airport to we're like, no, no, it's, it's like an hour. It's going to be all right. You're going to be okay. So then they would come and they'd get settled and they'd go, okay, what are we going to do? We would say, well, nothing. It's, <laughs> what's so great about it? It's just, well, what, what do you eat? Like, what's, what's like, what's Bowling Green famous for? What's, 
What's the food that everybody knows it for? And we'd go, I've got more pizza per capita than anywhere in the Midwest. <laughs> so your five days, three meals a day. We can have all of them if you want. Lots of pizza. And what they came to realize is it's the kind of place that's really special to us. But if you're not from here or you don't live here, you would think there's not a whole lot that's special about the place. It's the kind of place that's special to us, but in the world's eyes, it's nothing special. It's just a dot on a map. It's just another little spot. And still, when people from Weston or Portage or Tontagony or Sugar Ridge, when they say, I'm going into town for some groceries, where are they talking about going? Bowling Green. And that helps us set the scene a little bit as we look at the life of Jesus as he's on the Sea of Galilee, and it says he's going about the towns around the Sea of Galilee. And what we need to understand is when we picture Jesus, and it says Jesus was in the cities, we picture Jesus in these really important cities, Roman columns and big crowds, and we think, gosh, this Jesus was going about the cities. I'm here to burst your bubble a little bit. Jesus is in Weston, population 1,500. Jesus is in Portage, 450. Jesus is in the village of Tantagony with 367 residents. He's hanging in the little cities of Galilee, Capernaum, which was the kind of the home base for Jesus's ministerial life, where he spent the most of his ministerial life, the most of the stories we have about the work Jesus is doing in the New Testament comes from this village on the Sea of Galilee known as Capernaum. It was a city of 1,500 people. Nazareth, the famous Nazareth of Jesus of Nazareth, 400 people. A hundred miles away, several days' journey in that time, was Jerusalem, 30,000 to 50,000, or on a religious festival weekend, maybe 100,000 or more, but 30 to 50 was several days away. So I want to welcome you back to Weston, Ohio with Jesus. In a town that feels like nowhere, a man comes out of nowhere, a leper, he walks up to Jesus and he goes, you can make me clean. And you pause the story there and you have to remember, anytime we see a leper in the New Testament, that represents something. It's somebody with a disfigurement or a skin condition, some contagious, many probably weren't, but it doesn't actually matter. The disease is incidental and we get this wrong. We always focus on the leprosy. We're Googling it. What did it look like? What is it really? What would it be called today? Is it healed? Is there still leprosy? What's this leprosy? And what we need to see is it's actually not about the person's disease. It's about what the, what the uh, disease does to their place in humanity, what it does to their place in their society in his daily life. And what leprosy would do for a person in the age of Jesus is ultimately make them less human. They became social outcasts and emotional outcasts. They were not allowed into cities and towns. They were totally cut off. Any good Jewish person would know you cannot touch them because they would make you ritualistically unclean. And so they couldn't even be physically touched. So they were emotionally, utterly isolated economically. Since they couldn't come into the city, they were economically totally devastated. They were unclean. They were forbidden. They were not allowed into the temple. They could not be allowed in the presence of God. They were not allowed in the synagogue. They were not allowed to worship with community. They were social and emotional and economic outcasts. And they were spiritual pariahs kept on the outside. How do you keep them out of the city? It's not like today where there's a sign that says the community begins here. There were walls around cities. You'll read this in your Bible. That their cities are walled. Some are big walls with, you know, towers and guards and others probably like these small towns. This Weston of the Bible probably has four foot 
stone walls around it just to demarcate where clean and dirty can exist because the leper was unclean and had to stay outside the walls and so we need to know where the walls are. But notice where our story takes place. Notice where we pick up the story today. It says Jesus was in the cities. Jesus is inside of the walls. And so this leper has decided at some point that what he's going to do, having heard of this Jesus that's doing this healing, he's going to find this Jesus, which means he has to go from outside the city to inside the city. He has to cross the wall at some point, which means he's probably in a little bit of a hurry because the second he's in the city, people are going to recognize he shouldn't be. So consider what's already happened. This leper sprints into the presence of Jesus. You ever felt like you don't belong somewhere? You ever walk into a room and know you don't belong somewhere? If there's any men in this room that are older than their early 20s, I would invite you to go back to a time when you were invited to a wedding when you were in your early 20s. And, and men who get invited to weddings in their early 20s have no business ever going. We should just say no. We don't have the clothes for it. We don't know what to do with the, what's, what is this? The tiny spoon is for what? The little fork? I don't know anything. I'm just at a wedding. I'm making a fool of myself. I would show up in rumpled khakis, an ill-fitting jacket. You're either there because a friend of yours got married and you're lonely or because an ex-girlfriend of yours got married and she's rubbing it in. And no matter what, you're just there. And you know you shouldn't be there. And only when you're a little older and you actually have a suit that fits and then you look appropriate. But for a while, it's like, ah, I don't belong here. And everybody knows you don't belong here. There's a whole table of them, Right? We put them at their own tables. I had this feeling once I got invited to a, a restaurant to, to have dinner with a friend's parents. The Palm Steakhouses, Steakhouses in kind of big cities, and it's one of these white tablecloth kind of fancy places. And it, it's kind of its thing is it has caricatures drawn on the wall of famous people that have eaten in them. And so if you go in, you'll see, oh, there's the news person, and there's the sports star and the celebrity. And so you can kind of see um, why they're charging you $53 for the steak with no sides. It's because you're like, well, I'm in hallowed ground here. And so I go and sit down at this dinner with uh, these people, and I look above the host who invited me, and up in, just above his left shoulder, I can see his caricature. And I was like, oh, I'm way out of my league here. I got no idea what to do. They hand me the menu, which weighs like a ton, and I open it up, and it's like the story of steak. And I, I don't know what to do. I look at the menu, and it really is like it's $45 for the cheapest piece of meat here with no sides, which is like a week's wages for me at that point in my life. You're going, oh, gosh, what do you do with this? You look at the sides then. You go, well, okay, I've got to have a side. I don't want to be embarrassing. And asparagus, four spears of asparagus is $11. And you go, okay, what are they dipping them in gold? I don't know what's happening the waiter comes by. The waiter knows you don't know what's going on. The host knows you don't know what's going on. Everybody can tell that you're totally clueless. The busboy knows you don't know what's going on. The dishwasher, the valet who I tried to fight when he tried to take my keys, he knows I don't know what's happening. Everybody's aware that this guy doesn't know what's going on. He's definitely an outsider to which I just closed the menu and I said, why don't you just order for me? I'll have what you're having. You know when you don't belong somewhere. It's actually a pretty terrible feeling to be the outsider. Everybody's felt that at one point or another. You also know when you're on the inside and someone else doesn't belong, and kind of sneakily, we like that feeling. I'm on the end. That's, that subtle swell of superiority that we feel. So Jesus is walking through the town, and here comes this leper, and it's like an early test in the ministry of Jesus. He's just kind of just getting going. And I would imagine those who are listening to his teaching, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're listening to the teaching of Christ and they see this leper sprint up and they're like, perfect test. Let's see what he does with this guy. What's Jesus going to do with his joker running in from outside the city walls? And the scripture says that Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. 
Why? We like to think it's because he was physically healing him. So he makes physical touch. Like it's in the movies when you see somebody walk up and there's like a magical whom, and then the, the waves go over the person or the sparkles happen. And all of a sudden, you know, you hear that the, the chime whing, and the guy's clean all of a sudden. And he's like, you did it. I'm clean. And that's what we imagine. He's going over to touch him because to touch him is to heal him. And yet that, that can't be it. It has nothing to do with touching equals healing because over and over in the New Testament, we see Jesus healing people with never touching them. In fact, once he's approached on the road and a man says, my servant is sick, will you come heal them? And he goes, because of your faith, they're healed. Doesn't even see them and they're healed. So he doesn't need to touch them to heal them. So what's happening here? Jesus is crossing a line in order to bring an outsider in. Jesus is crossing a cultural line, a societal line. He is violating taboo in order to communicate to both the leper and everyone around that I'm bringing this person in. This man who probably hasn't experienced physical touch from another human being in who knows how long, Jesus touches him. And we have to read it properly because we think this man runs up to Jesus and we've seen it in other places in the, in the New Testament where someone will rush out and they'll reach for Jesus, they'll grab for Jesus, they'll try to grab a hold of Jesus. And this doesn't say that. This says, the man says, if you will, you could clean me. And it says, Jesus stretches out his hand. Jesus initiates the action. Jesus is the one who goes to touch. He sees a physical need, but he reaches out to deal with an emotional and a social brokenness in this person. See, healing is only the beginning. He is touching him to say to everyone else, you see what I'm doing? He's clean now. And we know this is true because his next line to the leper is, go see the priest. He says, go see the priest. And the priest was the arbiter of what was clean and unclean. The priest was the one who could check him and inspect him and go, gosh, he doesn't have leprosy. Yes, he's welcome back in. Absolutely. And so Jesus is saying, not only am I up, I'm, I'm upending the entire structure of how this works, but I'm going to do so within the structure you've created just so you can't call me on it. And he says, go see the priest and the priest will judge you clean. Jesus is looking at him and essentially saying, I've restored you to communal living. The priest will say, you're back in. You have a place here. And the priest is going to confirm it. Welcome back to community and welcome back to family and welcome back to wholeness. Jesus stretches out proactively to bring him in. And this is instructive because we see it over and over in the life of Jesus. Outcasts and losers, women in a world of men, children in a world of adults, tax collectors, prostitutes, racial outsiders, ethnic marginalized people. We see Jesus looking at the defiled and the unimportant and the outsider and pulling them in over and over and over. He stretches out, initiates, and pulls outsiders in. Jesus opposes power structures. He never leverages his power. He always gives it away. Even before he rose in power, you go, wait, pastor, but, but it says Jesus rose from the dead like he used his power of resurrection. Even before he used that power, he became willingly weak to the point of death. His power was in his willingness to die. Jesus served and washed feet. Jesus took a cross. Jesus granted salvation by releasing his power and surrendering his life. Our salvation is a result of his surrender. And that's the same way we accept it. Salvation is always in surrender. We are saved because, not because we're strong or committed or accomplished. We're saved by admitting we're none of those things. We don't find faith by building ourselves up so that we can reach the heavens, but rather we find faith when we reach the end of ourselves and realize there's nothing left, and so I surrender. And only in surrender do we find salvation, which has to change the way we live. 
If it's real in us, it changes the way we live. It changes the essence of who we are. We begun, we like renovated from the inside out. And what we start to realize is we can't live the way we used to live. We can't see the world the same way. You claim salvation, but still seek superiority in your social circle. You claim salvation, but still harbor secret racism. You claim salvation, but you're still looking down on others or holding others down or working to earn your righteousness. And I'm not here to say your salvation's not real. I'm here to say there's rooms of your house that have not been cleaned yet. But there's something happening. You got to repent and you got to allow Jesus in the fullness of who you are. Jesus asks for our full surrender and that's the posture from which he served us first. When we moved into our house here, let's just say we got a pretty good deal. That's how you're supposed to say that. When your house needs work, you just say we got a good deal. We got a good deal on our house. It needed a good scrubbing, needed a little cleaning. We had some generous people from the church who came by and people were painting our house for us and people were scrubbing the walls. Before we ever started doing anything proactive, we had to get rid of the, the old. And so people were literally scrubbing the walls where our, my children now sleep and there's black water coming down off the walls. They just had been like, how many years had this grime built up? The carpet in the master bathroom that had the two dug-in footprints right in front of the toilet yeah, we're getting rid of that. If I can come on out. Had a gas canister and a match at that point. Like, well, okay, like we're not going to deal with that. If it required we clean the house. Before we lifted a finger to fix anything, to improve the things, and we, my wife is great at this stuff. We've gone room by room. New garage doors and landscaping and bathrooms and basement. Before we did any of that, we had to clean it first. We had to get it ready for that improvement. And that's a lot of the ways that we look at salvation. Salvation is the cleaning. Jesus reaches out his hand and says, you are clean. And now you're clean and you're ready for what we would call sanctification, the becoming of holy, which is that renovation process that takes the rest of our lives as God then kind of takes us through the sometimes painful of tearing down all the way to the studs and rebuilding us in his image. But it starts with saying you're clean. Now get busy living the rest of this abundant life I've called you to. Now get on to the rest of it. And so cleanliness represents the salvation and then the renovation, the restoration of our lives is represented as our sanctification process. We first clean it and then we renovate it. Jesus is in the business of whole life renovation and restoration. And this is an important point. We had neighbors move in across the street not too long ago and, and when they were buying the house, they had to actually have people go in and remove false walls that had been built in the home. It was a, a really elderly couple that had been living there for years. And, and as, the, as the house kind of became too much for them to care for, instead of moving out to a smaller house, they had false walls built. So those rooms were kind of entombed and walled off. And they lived in an increasingly smaller portion of the house. And so when people came in to live in the house, they had to tear out these false walls so they could get in there. And they could clean out what was in there and begin to use those and live in those. And I would venture to say that a whole lot of us in this room have false walls built in our soul. We've said, Jesus, you can come in and I'll take your salvation, but you got to stay away from this area and I'm going to close off that room. I'm not ready for you to see this thing yet. And that's not how it works. Jesus isn't in the business of coming into one speck of your life and leaving the rest to chance. Jesus is in the business of whole life renovation and restoration. He comes in and he wants the whole thing and he will tear down the walls if you don't. You cannot contain Jesus. You cannot isolate his grace to one area of your life. He will not let you. 
The rich young ruler, some pages later in your Bible, comes through and asks how he finds eternal life. And Jesus says, sell everything you have. Jesus knew he had a wall up in a certain area of his life. And he goes, I'm going to tear that wall down. You want to follow me? Sell everything you have, and then you can follow me. And Scripture says the rich young ruler went away sad. And he wasn't ready to open up that room of his house. He wasn't ready to tear that wall down. He wanted a partial transactional Jesus fix me, make me feel better, and let me go about my day. And Jesus wasn't here for partial transaction. He's here for whole life transformation. He loves you too much, is what I would say. Jesus loves you too much to let you walk through life with partial transactional faith. He didn't give his life so that you could be a little better, a little closer, a little more fixed. He gave his life that you might have life and have it abundantly. And it starts with his touch with his willingness to proactively initiate faith for us to go, you're clean. And then it works through every area of your life. Maybe the final thing is this idea when Jesus says, now you're clean, when the leper comes up to him and says, if you want to heal me, you can. And Jesus goes, I do want to, and you're clean. Jesus is doing more than we see there. He is shattering categories of society. When Jesus touches the leper and says, now you're clean, he is doing something previously unseen in all of human history. Because up until that point, when unclean meets clean, the clean is always blemished. When unclean meets clean, the result is you have two things that are now unclean. Think about this. You take a brand new shoe you just bought and rub it through some mud. Is the shoe going to be dirty or is the mud now clean? The shoe is dirty. You take a clean pitcher of water and a dirty pitcher of water and doesn't matter which order you pour them into, what you get at the end of it is some, some dirty water. In the whole of human history, there is no example where clean and unclean come together and it doesn't end in two unclean things. And Jesus comes forward and he says, I'm going to touch the unclean and now you're clean. And he has broken the category for people. The reason they built walls is to keep the unclean out. And Jesus says, I am one to knock down the walls. Unclean is now welcome in because I am clean and I cannot be blemished. And in a nowhere type of town, a map dot, Jesus reaches out and touches the leper to make a point. And listen up because maybe that's why you're here today because you need to hear this for yourself. When Jesus touches the leper, he is saying, I am clean and there is no town too unimportant no heart too distant, no life too far gone for my healing. You cannot be too dirty or too sinful or too broken or too stained or too tainted, too defiled, too sick, too far gone for the healing of Jesus. And if you have a room inside of your soul that you think he doesn't want access to, you're wrong. Jesus is here for a whole life transformation. And no matter what you think is too unclean for him, he reaches out and says, I'm clean and now you can be too. You cannot sully him You can simply surrender and allow him to clean you. And when you surrender and when you run to Jesus like the leper and you cross that wall and you go, Lord, make me clean, he's faithful to do so and his presence erases all of that. The shame and the pain and the guilt. And it replaces it day by day, moment by moment. As the renovation of your heart begins to happen, you get it replaced with his cleanness and his purity and his holiness and his righteousness. Every day the house is being made new. Every day you are being made new. So the first thing we do is we go, how do we live out this mission in the way that Jesus lived it out? The first thing we have to do is be willing to be cleaned.
I'm going to know Jesus, I have to invite him in, not to part of me, not to a transaction. I want to have the whole life transformation. And then how do we make him known? How do we make Jesus known like Jesus made himself known? And that's to walk around this place unafraid of societal norms and cultural conventions. We walk around this place unafraid to make outsiders insiders. To break categories, to go seek out the lost and the lame, to go seek out the person who's feeling like the permanent outsider, the person who feels they're too far gone, and we say there's none too far for Jesus' redemption. We exist to become conduits, streams of grace and mercy crashing into lives. We exist as a people to not only receive the cleaning, healing, beautiful, saving touch of Jesus, but then to turn around and offer that far and wide. To wash away bitterness and sin, to be the tip of the spear that goes into a world desperate for healing and to say, we know where it comes from. It's this abundant love. And if you just knew it, we have a Jesus who breaks down walls, who crosses borders, who smashes categories, who will stop at nothing to see us loved and healed. We have a Jesus who makes outsiders insiders, and now we have a mission to go and do the same. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. And Lord, in in stories like this, we see ourselves in both positions. We see ourselves as insiders trying to build ourselves up and We feel guilt and shame. We see ourselves as outsiders trying to work our way in, feeling unclean and unworthy. There's pain and shame in that too. Lord, my prayer is that no matter where each heart in this room sits, Father, I first would recognize that each person here harbors hurts, harbors pain, different habits and hang-ups. Father, I pray that we would tear the walls down to those rooms. We would invite you in this morning and say, Lord, you can have that one too. You can have all of me. Lord, when we look at our lives and consider how it is we're to live like you and and approach this community like you, our neighbors like you, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to be the sort of people that tear down walls, the sort of people that put our reputations on the line so that we can make outsiders insiders. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his radical love and his saving grace. Thank you that he initiates with us, that he stretches out his hand. God, thank you. When we were in need and unclean, you held us close and said, you're in with me now. Father, embrace us this morning. Draw us close so you might send us out. God, we love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.